if you come on the side of justification has to do with your inclusion with the covenant community that you can lose, you tend to side on, no, Paul is interacting with second temple texts. If you come on the side, no, justification is given to us by Christ and by Christ alone, and Paul is interacting with the Mosaic law, with the covenant of works, you come on the side of the reformers on justification. Welcome to the Guilt, Grace, Gratitude podcast featuring Peter Bell and Nick Fulweiler. This is a show about Christian doctrine for everyone from the historic Reformed tradition, delivered by two friends in an unscripted dialogue. Join us as we discuss how the finished work of Jesus Christ changes everything. Are you in the Orange County or Santa Ana area? We are exploring a church plant, Santa Ana Reformed, with the oversight and accountability of Oceanside URC and Reverend Danny Hyde. If you are interested or you know someone who might be interested in the area, please check out our show notes for a link to sign up for updates. Our Twitter or Instagram at guiltgracepod or Santa Ana URC for the same sign-up link, or simply email us at santaannareformed at gmail.com. We begin meetings on October 28th at 6.30 p.m. at 4th Street Market in downtown Santa Ana. Now on with the episode. Hello, everyone. Yet once again, it's another day of fresh grace and mercy. This is the Guilt, Grace, Gratitude podcast, where we bridge the gap to reform Christian theology for your listening pleasure. And we are on our promises and fulfillment season. So we're already in chapter 22, which is episode 22. It's Covenant and Second Temple Judaism. This chapter is written by Dr. Peter Lee. And all the chapters in this book, in the Covenant Theology book published by Crossway, are written by Reformed Theological Seminary staff and faculty. And so we are going to unpack, just Peter and myself, we're going to unpack this chapter here in a moment. As a reminder in our show notes, there is a link to Crossway. So if you go to that link, obviously you can find this book and you can get a copy for yourself. We are about closing through the, getting close to the end of this season. So uh, you're running out a little bit of time, but you still have some time to get the book and maybe catch up. Um, we are on the final section, which is part three of this book, and it is collateral and theological studies. So go to that link from Crossway, get this book, do yourself a huge favor. Um, as, as actually Dr. Ligon Duncan mentioned, this is, serves as a great companion to the book, our podcast. Yep. Yep. Um, not that we, uh, I think we're the unofficial official companion to the book. I know. Yeah, there was nothing official about it um, when we when we did it. And it's still technically not official, but um, we are proud to have that kind of um, that statement from Dr. Duncan that we can serve as a companion for this book. And it's an architectonic structure of the Bible, understanding these covenant themes. So uh, please do yourself a favor, uh, get that book, listen to each of our chapters and also the other links uh, in our show notes, you can find the Society of Reformed Podcasters, which we are a proud member of. There's other podcasts in that group that you can find that are reformed in doctrine, and uh, you can learn a little bit from their show as well. 
And then there's also a link to find a local church near you, a reformed church near you. No matter what zip code you're in, you can find the closest reformed church near you to call home. And so let's jump into this, this uh, episode 22 of Promises and Fulfillments. Yeah. So if you guys, uh, you guys are listening to this now, obviously, so it's Monday or Tuesday, whatever it is, but we have an episode coming out next Thursday. So that this Thursday, but next Thursday with Dr. Schreiner. So we'll give you kind of a, like a quick little background on podcasting. So we actually, we actually recorded that one with Schreiner about an hour ago. So mm-hmm. if you guys are listening to this, we have one in the future coming, but this is, you're listening to this right now. So we're kind of on a marathon. So if you guys want to be funny, we're, 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 uh, we're tired podcasters. So you can, you can post up if you're on social media, post a picture of a water bottle or like a finish line and we'll know that you you listen to this part which is just a, like a funny little reminder but that's a little little background into that into the podcasting podcasting world but even if you guys started later on in season three or in season three if you're on section three um all the episodes are still archived on our podcast show and so if you want to and you, you guys have the book or it's coming up to christmas season and so if you guys ask for this book for christmas you can still go through every chapter with that book, which is the great thing about podcasting is <coughs> these don't go away. So you guys can listen to the, these episodes with all these scholars, with these pastors, these theologians, these authors, you can listen to it in tandem with the book. And it's like, it's like having, it's like having, can you imagine having Dr. Ligon Duncan next to you, walking next to you? He, he's holding out your hand in this chapter is, Hey, let me walk you through the ancient church and how they understood covenant. You can walk with them as you're reading this book. So it's a great way of, of understanding covenants, theology and covenant history um, w- within this. But yeah, all that, all that to say is the uh, covenant and second temple Judaism can sound like what on earth does this have to do with me? What on earth do I have to know this for? And in all reality, you don't have to know the ins and outs, which we're not going to go like super, super, super deep into the ins and outs, but it actually does play a big factor and kind of this big theme of justification. If you guys are wondering, like, how does this actually affect me right here and right now? It does have to do with how do we understand the Abrahamic and the Mosaic covenants? Who's in this covenant community? And is it us who are staying in this community or is it God who keeps us in this community? And so a lot of these, a lot of these, even though it gets nuanced, um, this, this is something that, it, that is pretty crucial for understanding of justification by faith. And so I would, I would still counsel those who are listening to listen carefully and as you're reading this book, we'll, we'll help you nuance these views a little bit. So, you know, it's not just an academic conversation. It, it really does affect us. Yeah. And my personal journey with <clears throat> just this chapter is uh, the title, although we know that all the titles are very important or yep. they wouldn't be in this book, but it just came across to me initially very um, academic. And I'm thinking, oh, this is going to be a little bit harder to swallow and understand essentially I don't have a, a ton of knowledge going into this with this topic um, beforehand, but um, through reading it, um, there's some historical context that Dr. Lee points out, which I always appreciate upfront. So you can take us to the place and time of these events. Yeah. And then I'm not going to lie, like, because it, it was more of a new deeper amount of information for me that I had to, trudge through 
um, a little bit. I, I did kind of go on YouTube, try to find some clips of uh, <laughs> yeah. they're just learning about Second Temple Judaism more. And um, I got a better and better understanding and I'm just realizing more and more how gigantically uh, important this is. But weirdly enough, it's not talked about in the masses uh, too much in, in churches. But um, I mean, like you're saying before we recorded, I mean, New Testament scholars understanding Second Temple Judaism but is bedrock. extremely Oh yeah, it's a bedrock of understanding justification and and, and yeah. understanding Paul. So and, even if um, even if you or like let's let's like your your pastor, if he's reading a commentary in the New Testament, the commentary, especially if the commentary is on one of Paul's epistles, if he's reading anything in Paul, whoever he's reading has interacted with Second Temple Judaism. Yeah. Um, so there's there's these hidden assumptions within a lot of these. So even if your pastor's not telling you directly, or if you're reading commentaries, even if, even if you're reading these commentaries, if, even if the commentary is not making it directly known, they've made some assumption. They've come to some conclusion on these texts in second temple Judea or in second temple uh, Jewish texts. And so we still do interact with these things. It's just not on the surface. There's just, yeah. there's a lot of assumptions that come around these things. So um, yeah. yeah, there's, there's a lot of stuff kind of floating around in the background. Yeah, that's a good way to put it out, because I want to make sure it's clear that your pastor does and should uh, knows this stuff really well, um, and, you know, in the background of sermon prep and his. Just yeah. And even if he doesn't, it's it's assumed in a lot of these commentaries and a lot of these theological books. If you read anything on the Apostle Paul, everybody knows how well known the Apostle Paul is in Christianity, because if you go to your average church, like it or not, or whether or not they're, they're going to be going through probably Paul's epistles because they're quote unquote easier to preach. They're more quote unquote moralistic depending on how it's preached. But it like, it really is in the waters everywhere. That's, yeah. that's, that's the best way to describe this stuff. It's, it's okay. background. It's okay. It's what are your assumptions? How do you read these texts? How do you read Paul? Okay, cool. So I sense maybe somebody's driving in a car and like, is probably yelling, being like, get on with it already. Like, okay. <laughs> yes. Okay, yeah. Okay. You guys don't know podcasters. We, we banter a lot. So I'm sure like, sure. In a lot of ours, people just fast forward, fast forward, fast forward. Then realize like, oh, they're talking. Oh my gosh. We have to like re rewind. So if you guys are listening, we're starting now. <laughs> um, so let's, let's, as far as the time frame, it goes from 1550 or 15, 515 BC yeah. to AD 70. Yep. And so I'm going to read the very beginning of this. And this is, plays a crucial part in the kind of the intertestimonial period of the Bible. Yeah. Um, kind of taking it between there is a gap of time between the Old Testament and the New Testament. There's also, as far as um, the more recent books written in the Old Testament, is like Daniel, right? And Daniel, um, as far as a time period kind of sits alone a little bit in a, in a long period of time. And then there was also the gap of time between the old Testament, and new Testament being written. And then obviously this is very important because we know when Jesus was on earth and this place, this second temple Judaism is the place and time of Jesus. Yep. This yeah. is the Jewish world that Jesus was living in. So important to understand because as we re are reading a lot of really um, older books in, in the Old Testament, same religion uh, um, in, in uh, Jewish world, in Israel, um, 
Judaism, but I think a lot of things are a little bit uh, different um, when it comes to that by the time Jesus is on earth, you know, in terms of second temple Judaism. And what it's really basing it off of is uh, the first temple is Solomon's temple. Yeah. Beautiful, huge temple. Um, and then uh, fast forward to a chain of events. And uh, the second temple is going to be built. And we have a few key people that we'll mention uh, when that, uh, as this episode goes on. But what that goes down to is uh, AD 70 is the end date on uh, this time frame because that is when the Roman Empire destroyed the second temple. Yeah. Yeah. So I'm going to read the very beginning because it's going to help set up the historical framework of this. So the, the era of the second temple Judaism is the historical period that began with the reconstruction of the temple of Solomon during the ministries of Ezra and Nehemiah in 1515 BC. I keep saying 1515, 515 BC, 515 BC, and continued until its final destruction at the hands of the Roman Empire in AD 70. So it was not unlike the first temple history, which begun during the reign of Solomon. This period also came to a tragic end when another pagan ruler, the Babylonian king Nebuchadnezzar, rolled into Jerusalem with his military war machine and goes on. So the purpose of this essay that Dr. Lee mentions, the purpose of this essay is to describe the biblical covenants as they are articulated with, within the various Jewish literatures of the Second Temple era. Yeah, so if, if, uh, if you guys want to situate this, um, so the last biblical books in the Old Testament were probably probably sometime they're probably edited and, and finished sometime in 200 ish BC 300 ish BC, and so these temples the destruction of the the Jewish temple is 587, um, and then 515 to 70 is when the second temple was destroyed. So they erected the second temple during Ezra and Nehemiah. That's when they found the law, um, and so they're proclaiming the law, and so the people are like, oh man, we got to build the temple back up, and so that's that's this period between these two these two um, really huge parts of Jewish history. And so when you're thinking about this and especially post second or post second temple destruction, a lot of these, a lot of these Jewish people, as they're looking through covenant history, as they're looking through the old Testament, they're wondering, well, why, why is our temple destroyed? What's this temple doing here? How do we, how do we perform these sacrifices? How do we understand these sacrifices? How do we understand the promises given Abraham, given the Moses, and really especially given the David, we know our monarchy's gone. Like, we don't, we don't have a monarchy. We don't have a king anymore. If they're trying to figure out, and you see, you see a lot of Psalms talk about this too, what happened to our king? Why is this covenant seem like it's been broken with us? And so they're wrestling with a lot of these covenantal issues. They're wondering, has God's word proven faithless? What do we do with some of this stuff? Um, and some of these questions are some of the same questions we have today. We're wondering, well, we, we don't see the return of Christ. We see things are getting worse. Where is God in history? Where is God with us? Am I actually saved? How do I know that I'm saved? What is, what is covenant justification actually mean? And so all of, all of these things are, are floating around this time period, the same things that we have that we have today. And so this, this chapter is covering, covering a, a long time, but it, it really kind of focuses in 
on what's called Qumran. And so there's there's these 12 caves. I, I believe I, I have the number right. 12 caves. There's a lot in cave number four. So you ever seen a picture of the Jordan River? And then there's these big, tall cliffs. And there's this little hole in one of the cliffs. <clears throat> if you see one of those pictures, it's likely from Qumran Cave 4. And most, if not all, but I think it's, it's most of the texts that we have from the Second Temple period come from this cave. And so they're called Qumran scrolls or Qumran um, texts because they come from the Qumran community, which is a, a sect of some sort from the Jewish people at this time. And they're wrestling with these questions, they're wrestling with these issues, which is this is the this is what Dr. Lee is covering. He's he's covering there's there's more that he's covering. He's covering Sirach. He's covering um, a couple other um, intertestamental books, um, apocryphal books, but really kind of covering Qumran. And they're wrestling with these questions, which, uh, <coughs> again, comes into that is Paul, when he's talking in Galatians, is Paul wrestling with these issues? Is Paul referring to Qumran texts when he's talking about justification? Or is Paul talking about the law? Is Paul talking about the Mosaic law? And so that's where a lot of these issues come into play with Paul, where they come into <coughs> play with Jesus. Is he interacting with the Qumran scribes, or is he interacting with the, the law of Moses? And so a lot of these, a lot of these things are kind of floating in the air, which, which might help you guys situate why this chapter was written in the first place. Mm. And it sounds like the Jewish religion during the second temple period changed dramatically. I mean, it was about a sect of it. Yeah. I wouldn't say the, the whole thing changed, but Qumran is a, like a small sect of, is, yeah. the, of the Jewish people of the Jewish religion. So, a small, like, um, just oh, that's just the writings we have. We don't have all the writings of, of those in this period, but at least this this period, they're wrestling with some things. Whether they're changing views, nobody's quite sure. Uh, it's hard to make like a black and white statement on some of these things. We just don't know. Yeah, because I mean, this period is about four hundred and seventy-five or five hundred and forty-five years total. <clears throat> yeah, and it makes. It helps clarify the environment, the Jewish environment that Jesus was living in. Yeah, both. Yeah, both Jesus and Paul and Peter, all these New Testament authors. Um, you're thinking that they're when we're reading them, we have to think, who are they interacting with? Are they interacting with these Qumran scrolls? Are they interacting with the Old Testament? Are they interacting with a combination of the two? Um, and so that's, those are some of the things we're wrestling with. And you guys might be thinking like, well, what does that matter about this stuff? It, it revolves around how are they seeing the law? What law they're referring to? What law have we been freed from has been accomplished on our behalf? Uh, so a lot of these texts go through this, or is it, it tends to be the, the Qumran again, broad swath. It's not everybody, but broad generalization or are they thinking of the law what's called covenant inclusion are they are they talking about the laws these are the markers of the jewish people that's quote unquote the law or are they talking about the law as in what do sinners have to do in order to be right with god those those again generalizing but those tend to be the two things that they're wrestling with in this second temple time well yeah and there's um some stuff I learned just by uh, researching it a little bit uh, through YouTube and stuff like that and watching document or uh, some lectures and stuff like that, but I won't stray off the path of this chapter with Dr. Lee. So 
I'll kind of uh, get back to, to, to his chapter mm-hmm. um, and what he talks about, maybe in a, maybe of a, in a linear fashion yeah. for you guys to help you out. Um, so we start with the Noahic covenant yep. and um, it starts with one of my questions. Um, do you, do you want to, do you know somebody that knows how to build an ark? I have a question for you, Peter. Do I know somebody who knows how to build an ark? I know a guy. Who do you know? <laughs> that was the answer that you know. Uh, I know a guy. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Yeah. So starting off with a dad joke right on the uh, first topic <laughs> of here. Uh, <laughs> that one flew over my head. Yeah. Yeah. I could tell. No, it's all good. Um, the Noahic covenant. So how does uh, second temple Judaism affect uh, the understanding of the Noahic covenant? Yeah, so there's there's a couple things that I highlighted, um, and so he has a he has a paragraph on the top of 468, and again it talks about some Qumran text, and a lot of it is Qumran text. You kind of can think about it as like a commentary on scripture. Mm. How do they understand scripture? So that they're not they're not writing scripture, which it, it tends to be the misunderstanding of the Qumran scrolls. Is their commentaries effectively Jewish commentaries? On scripture, and so it's talking about like what what is this Noahic covenant? And so this so the, it's the first one that we actually have the word for covenant, the Hebrew berits, and so it's the rainbow in Genesis nine, and the one that says I will establish my covenant with you in Genesis six eighteen. So we're we're trying to wrestle with with what is what does this do? And also Book of Jubilees has a couple things on it, um, and then he says we we can make we can make two noteworthy observations about this Noahic covenant. And so Jubilees, which is again, an intertestamental book, and a, a, a kind of an apocryphal book, not, not canonical, not part of the scriptures that we have, but it says that Noah and his sons swore that they would follow the command against blood consumption and thus made a covenant with the Lord. Whereas it is the Lord who makes a covenant with Noah and his sons in the biblical texts and Jubilees, this is reversed. And then second, Noah celebrates the Mosaic Festival of Weeks in the Jubilees texts. And it says, Jubilees, therefore, gives the impression that Sinai, which is where Moses is at with the law, is a renewal of the ancient Noahic covenants and that Noah and his children followed a legal tradition that revives itself in the, in the Mosaic era. So they're, they're trying to make sense of what's happening with Noah because it kind of looks like what's happening with Moses. How does he know about these sacrificial ceremonies? And so the, those in this time period are trying to struggle with, well, as far as we know, in biblical history, up to the point of Noah, he hasn't been given commands about what to do with sacrifices, what to do with blood consumption, because nothing, again, the text tells us nothing's been explicit about sa- sacrificial system, about blood, about these things. And so they're reading the Mosaic Covenant, so Exodus 20, they're reading the law and then Exodus 20 to 24, and then further on after that. And they see some of these ceremonies that Noah is doing. And they're trying to figure out how do these two things interact. And so a lot of them make kind of jumps and leaps. And they're trying to figure out how do we how do we interact with these texts. And so that's where the commentary on their side comes in. And so they start filling in some gaps that we probably shouldn't be filling in. And so Dr. Lee talks about this stuff where it looks like a lot of these texts are actually reversing the obedience. They're reversing who's making the covenant with who. And so these Second Temple Judaistic texts, especially Jubilees and somewhat Qumran, flip the covenants. They say it wasn't a covenant that God made with Noah. 
in Genesis 6 and 9, it was actually a covenant that Noah made with God. And so that was their commentary on this. And so that's why it's important to read some of this, because there are those today who read these texts from Qumran and from Jubilees and say, oh, yeah, that makes a lot of sense, which flips understanding of, com- com- or of, uh, of the covenant of grace and the covenant of common grace, where what was given to, Mo- or to Noah in Genesis 6 was this kind of obedience covenant that Dr. Van Pelt talked about um, much, much earlier in season three. He talked about the evangelical obedience, kind of like this covenant of works given with Noah, and then this covenant of common grace in Genesis 9. And so that's that's where some of these Second Temple Judaistic texts are wrestling with Noah. They see things that look like Moses, but they're not sure how to read it in because it hasn't been revealed, as far as we know, to Noah yet. So they're trying to wrestle with some of these questions. So right out of the gate, it seems like we hit a speed bump. We hit a snag, and there's some kind of like, I, is this a, do we chalk this up as like so far some bad theology on their end, or do we take the baby and throw it out with the bathwater? Or do we have some hope that, do we have some hope that the Qumran and Jubilees is get some things right? And if they already got maybe something wrong in this interpretation of the Noahic covenant, uh, how do we know if they have something right moving forward? Yeah. And they, they've got some good stuff, but so maybe the best way to describe this, is when the Old Testament's being written, um, as far as we know, the book of the law, so the first five books of the, of the Old Testament, Genesis through Deuteronomy, is revealed, <coughs> is revealed sometime to Solomon in 1100, or t- not uh, after that, because David's in, in 10, uh, 1000 BC. Um, and so we're, we're, they're trying to wrestle with, okay, we know the time period that these texts are showing us. And so Abraham is like 1900, 1800 BC, but it's actually when it's written and shown to the people, it's like a thousand years after this. And so when the scribes are writing, when Moses is writing, our editors are are helping out with, with this process under the inspiration of the Holy spirit, they're writing, looking back to some of this stuff. So when they're writing about Noah, they're writing, a thousand years after Noah, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, they're writing about the times and the place of Noah um, in some construction like this. But they're doing this to a people who have a different practice, who the law has been revealed to, the sacrificial system has been revealed to. And so they explain things in a way that they understand. It's kind of like that God accommodating to us. He's explaining to us in a language we understand. And so that's the kind of stuff that Jubilees and Qumran is wrestling with is they see sacrificial language, and that's because the time that this was written to Noah, so the author, Moses, and the editors, whoever they have, may have been, again, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, they're writing well after Noah, and they're writing well after Abraham, but they're writing about Noah and about Abraham at their time period, but much after, which is why you see some of these things, is they're in the sacrificial system. And so that's why some of these texts come into it presupposing that it was revealed to these biblical characters when what's revealed is the ones who are writing have this system in place and they're trying to describe it to those who are listening to them okay how was noah interacting with god how is abraham interacting with god how is moses interacting with god so does that make sense yeah just more of a checkpoint of understanding so far so 
the second temp second temple Judaism is a sect of the Jewish religion. This isn't encompassing the Qumran and Jubilees texts, those commentaries, those works are not from all Jews. Yes. Yeah, so this is second temple isn't a sec, second temple is the period. Yeah. And Qumran and Jubilees are certain texts from a various sects within Judaism. There we go. Yep. And so this sect of Judaism that that writes the Qumran and Jubilees, uh, that's not reflecting what 100% of the Jewish religion. No, uh, yeah, and that's, that the, tends to be the, the misunderstanding is this was Jewish understanding, which, mm -hmm. no, this was a sect of Jewish understanding. There we go. Um, so while Jesus... Uh, he, Jesus was obviously living um, during the very, towards very close to the end of the second temple Judaism era. I mean, he lived probably from 6 BC to, you know, about 30 AD ish, 30 AD. And so there's another, you know, another 30, 40 years of, yeah. uh, of the, of of the uh, Second Temple Judaism uh, time period, after he uh, rose, after he went to the cross. So, while he was on Earth, the people he was addressing, like the Pharisees, I don't think Dr. Lee dug into this at all. But no. it's just more of a question based on the context of, of what Jesus was uh, working through. Is uh, the Pharisees he was addressing were those? this part of sect of Jewish religion, or do we even know? We don't know. Okay. Because what I find is, is interesting because is there a whole lot of mention of even rabbi and Pharisees before second temple Judaism? Oh yeah. Yeah, there was. Okay. Pharisees is a sect. We just don't know who it was. Gotcha. Okay. All right. So moving on to the Abrahamic covenant, this is pretty important. Obviously, yeah. yep. uh, this is pretty massive. Uh, yeah. There, I'd say this one and, and the Davidic one seem to stick out the most. Yeah, they do. Yep, and you, yeah, you guys will hear why soon. So he starts to stop saying the the covenant God made with Abraham is mentioned in Genesis 15. We already know that, where the Lord makes a uh, malicadory oath on himself, and that he will fulfill the covenantal promise. Um, and so the Lord gives a covenantal sign of circumcision. And so it's renewed with Abraham's descendants. And then we go on to probably Genesis 22 is an important passage. Yep. Yep. Yeah. So Genesis 22. And, and so Dr. Dr. Lee talks, talks a lot about this. And so to, to summarize Abraham as it relates to second temple, um, judaism and how they understand abraham is it has to do with either covenantal inclusion um and obedience who's obeying who who's the covenant made with and what's the covenant based on or is it a gracious unilateral covenants mm. and so when when these when these texts are interacting with abraham <clears throat> they're wrestling with genesis 15 6 and especially the phrase and it was his faith was credited to him as righteousness. Mm. 
And a big reason why this is, is kind of zeroed in on is how Paul interacts with this in Galatians. Because Paul makes a big deal out of this crediting of righteousness because he's looking back to Abraham and saying, okay, what was that talking about? What was credited to Abraham? And on what basis was righteousness credited to Abraham? And so these texts are reading Abraham, they're reading him in his time and period, but they're also reading Paul. Um, later on after Paul, some, some second temple uh, scholars are reading Paul. Those between this period, though, are reading, uh, reading Abraham and trying to figure out, well, there's nothing before Abraham that really shows us his faith. There's nothing that shows us his obedience. We see Genesis 22, where his obedience is shown. But what does that have to do with Genesis 15? Because his obedience with Isaac comes after Genesis 15 and the crediting of righteousness. So the wrestling with, we see obedience after his crediting of righteousness, not before. So what do we do with this? That's why they look at the land promise in Genesis 12. They see the land promise and the multiplication of his seed. And so they're reading all of these things on Abraham and saying, okay, he must be some righteous character. He must have this great faith in God. God looks at him and says, okay, you have this great faith. You responded well to my promise. And then in Genesis 22, Abraham's faith is vindicated. So God looks at Abraham in Genesis 22. He tests him at the, uh, I think it's Mount Moriah. You guys might correct me. I forget the exact the, the mountain name where he, he comes up to sacrifice Isaac. <clears throat> and the Lord says, sacrifice your only son. Abraham's like, this is the only guy I got. This is where, where my line has to come from. But they, they will read this text saying, well, what's happening in Genesis 22 is the faith that was credited to Abraham is now being tested. Let's figure out if this faith is true. And at the end, as we see at the end of Genesis 22, they'll read it. Okay, this faith was true. So that crediting is true. He's staying in this righteousness. He's staying a righteous man. But then you read Paul and how Paul reads Abraham. Paul reads his crediting the righteousness, not for something that Abraham did, not for any faith that Abraham had before his crediting of righteousness, because where does Abraham come from? He comes from pagan father. He comes from a pagan family, comes from the land of Ur, not a place of Yahweh worshipers. So you have to think what faith is being credited? <coughs> what faith is the Lord looking at to credit him righteousness? And so that's where this Abrahamic covenant really kind of gets zeroed in on by these second temple Judaistic texts is they look before Abraham, they don't see obedience. They don't see he's doing anything to merit this covenant with him. They look after Abraham and see, okay, there's the obedience in Genesis 22. We're seeing he's now making rights on what the Lord told him. Now he's staying in this covenant. He's continuing in this righteousness. And so they see true faith actually really being tested in Genesis 22 versus how Paul reads it. Paul reads Genesis 22 as not the faith being tested, but the faith being demonstrated. Faith is demonstrated in Genesis 22, where this crediting of righteousness is now manifested in Genesis 22, where his, his righteousness is proclaimed that he's been given righteousness by his faith, and that is now being manifested in him offering up his son as a sacrifice. Paul reads this stuff and says, that what was, what was credited to Abraham as righteousness 
is credited to you as righteousness as well. Cause that was also given before the sign of circumcision. And so he reads a lot of this stuff in Romans four, which again, a lot of the second temple um, Judaistic texts will read circumcision as uh, something that you get on the front end and you have to continue getting, you have to continue working in to stay in. So that's, that's, and I know it's a long explanation on Abraham and the covenants, but they're really struggling and we can really struggle with Abraham if we're not reading Paul on him interpreting Abraham for us and saying, this is what that faith was. This is why it was credited to, credited to him and it's manifested. So you can see in 12, it's promised in 15, it's given. And then in 22, it's shown. And then Paul reads these texts in the same way. That's And so these, these second temple um, Jewish texts are reading these differently. They're not seeing it as promised, given, and then show forth. They're seeing something like promised, given, tested, which we see it differently because of how Paul reads it. Yeah, it's a question of <clears throat> when justification is applied and, yeah, it's, and it's, shown. Yeah, it's both uh, applied and shown. It, it, might, it might be better to describe not so much as, as when it's given, but how it's manifested. What justification is, is it a one-time, is it a one-time declaration where you're imputed, you are credited, your account is given perfect righteousness before the law, or is justification something you have to continually prove? And so a lot of the Second Temple Jewish texts will see justification in Genesis 15 proven in Genesis 22, but able to be lost also in Genesis 22. If he didn't do this, his justification could have been lost. I guess my understanding would be more, uh, it would be that through after justification, that moment of justification, uh, sanctification is evidence. Yep. That's, that's how Paul reads it. And so you would see the growth and sanctification God working in us by his spirit, you see the result of that being in Genesis 22. So you see the declaration of justification in Genesis 15, whether or not it happened before this, but the declaration in Genesis 15, and you see him growing, but it's funny because he doesn't really grow in sanctification before Genesis 22, because what happens between Genesis 15 and Genesis 22, he gives away his wife again. Yep. So he, he goes into um, Sodom and Gomorrah, He's, he's, he's not doing good stuff. And so we can think of sanctification as this upward trajectory, um, but it's, it's not really an upward trajectory. It's, it's a zigzag line between our declaration and our glorification. Mm -hmm. And if you guys are struggling with this right now, I would say pause and go back to the beginning of the season when we walked through the Abrahamic covenant. Yeah. And why not just listen to that one and the Noahic covenant and the Davidic one and all of that part one part of this yeah. season and re clarify how this is flushing out. Um, because yeah. that I think on the Abrahamic one, I remember us walking through each of the chapters of Genesis that were uh, relevant to, to, you know, 15, 17, 22, all those and how Abraham 
after, I mean, he, he has faith imputed to him, you know, uh, first and foremost. His justification or his righteousness imputed to him. Faith is the instrument. Yeah. So he wouldn't, he didn't come up with faith on his own. No, no. You know, he was given faith faith. is the, is the grasping of the thing imputed. Faith is not imputed. Faith is the thing that grasps the thing imputed. Okay. Yeah. Thank you on the clarification uh but yeah it's it's either way it's a gift in itself yeah totally and yeah so, that's and that's why this stuff is so important is because the biblical authors jesus or not a biblical author but the biblical um jesus in the in the new testament and paul as he's interpreting some of these things and under the inspiration of the spirit he's interpreting a lot of abraham and if we see abraham as a legal covenants that we have to stay in by works to continue in our to continue growing in our justification, which is effectively what the church of Rome talks about is you have to grow in your justification is something you grow in. Um, and then a lot of these mm-hmm. second temple scholars will see justification. They'll see an initial justification by circumcision. They'll see something where you're engrafted into the covenant community, which this is what they read Abraham. This is, this is why this chapter is so important because they'll read Abraham and say, okay, he's grafted in to the covenant community in Genesis 15 and 17 with the sign of circumcision. And then he gives that sign of circumcision to Isaac, but he's tested in Genesis 22. So he could have lost his inclusion into this covenant community. His justification is not yet secure. He has to prove his justification versus the way we see Paul reading this. And we think the biblical way of reading this is justification cannot be lost. It's the one-time declaration of your righteousness, not your righteousness, but credited righteousness by Jesus Christ to your account and your justification is not tested it's proven that's a that's a huge distinction that we see in abraham we don't see abraham's justification in genesis 15 tested in genesis 22 we see it proven in genesis mm-hmm. 22 and that's a big distinction we have to make and that's why you can read second temple judea you might people will probably never read second temple texts but the way they read it is they'll say it's a gracious covenant, which that's why this chapter can be confusing. Is they'll say this is a gracious covenant given to Abraham. But what they really mean is gracious covenants clothed in legalism. Mm. Okay. So so hopefully hopefully that helps, and that that helps us understand Moses a little bit better. That helps us understand David a little bit better. Because like we talked about in part one, these are all building off of Abraham. They're all building off of Noah. They're all building off of Adam. And so this goes into, do we see a distinction between Moses and Abraham? Because Moses builds off, which we can move into this, this next section. Moses is building off the land promise of Abraham. Because the land promise, if you guys remember, is given in Genesis 12. This I will multiply your seed as the sea as the sands of the seashore spread you across that the Adamic mandates of take dominion, take this land for my glory. That's given again in Moses. And so they're also reading Moses. Okay, we see some legalistic requirements in Moses. Let's read that stuff into uh, to Abraham as well. And so this stuff can get really kind of tweaky, and you're like, oh, this is this is too hard for me to understand. And my um, I would implore you to trek slowly and carefully through these chapters and through these waters because uh-huh. you come out with a far clearer and more concise understanding of what justification is. Uh-huh. 
that's that's the big thing is when Moses is talking about when when the Lord in Exodus 19 is talking about the land that I'm bringing you, and then he talks about the law in Exodus 20. They look at Exodus 19 as this extension of Abraham, this land promise given to Abraham. Okay, let's say gracious. Okay, so now we can see Abraham and Moses are kind of the same covenants. We say, hold on, hold on, hold on. There's a law in Exodus 20. There's not a law in Genesis 12, 15, 17, or 22. This is how do you hold these things together, which is, again, what Second Temple texts are wrestling with. Is this just a, uh, is this another example of adding a works-based faith? Yeah, it's, it's almost exactly. So if you guys, you guys, if you guys follow Dr. Clark, and we've had him on before, and we had him on for the Mosaic Covenants uh, on season three, but he talked about, there's, <clears throat> there's this kind of um, misunderstanding and some reformed theologians uh, and some outside of this, either whether they call it this or not, but effectively, and you'll hear this in a lot of churches today. You're declared righteous in Christ in your justification, but then you have to stay in it. You have to continue working. You have to continue growing in justification. You have to continue growing in righteousness, continue pursuing, which we would say, amen. Like, yeah, let's, let's continue growing, but we're not growing in our justification. We're not growing in our righteousness because we have no righteousness in and of ourselves. We're given perfect righteousness. This is, this is the big distinction and a lot of second temple texts sound a lot like in by justification, continue by works. Mm. If you can summarize them in like one sentence, again, this is vastly generalizing a ton of texts, but mm-hmm. if you can summarize them, they say, okay, Abraham in by justification, but also you stay by working. Not how we see Paul interacting with Abraham and Moses saying you're in by Abraham and you stay in the same. Yeah. And that's what I love about the reform doctrine and understanding of justification is once you're justified, you're, you're not going to lose that. You're once you're a child of God, you're, you're not going to ever have ceased to be a child of him. Does that mean that we go on and say, uh, okay, well now I can go live a very sinful life by no means. Paul says, Like, why would we go, why would we have this um, new covenant relationship with our father and then uh, act like we hate him? Like we have a new heart. Um, Yeah. And and Dr. Dr. Lee's, he's talking about some of this stuff and he's talking about how we read Moses. He's talking about how we read the law. Um, And even further on, there's a, there's a few quotes that he's talking about this, this one right in the middle of 474. He says, in that sense, the Qumranic views, again, think Second Temple, of being in the covenant is much more restrictive regarding covenant obedience and thus membership, and it limits it to only those who conform to the covenantal peculiarities of the community, even if this means alienating fellow Jews. So he's thinking, he's, what he's describing is that they're adding these laws on top of this covenant. To stay in this covenant, you have to keep these laws. You have to keep these practices. So they're reading... Moses, as a stay in this land, ergo, stay in this covenants, you have to keep these promises. Versus the way the Reformed and Dr. Lee reads this, it's a single covenant of grace that Dr. Clark has talked about before, that the Mosaic covenant's under, that the Abrahamic covenant's under, that they both are. But there's also, you see in Moses, 
the Mosaic Covenant, the stream of land promise. So the Qumranic text, the Second Temple text, are trying to make an understanding of why do they keep talking about this land? Why do they keep talking about this promised land? Why do they keep talking about obedience and staying in the land? And they see something like, and again, to distill it a little bit for Second Temple, for Dr. Lee, and for covenantal theology, is you see this gracious covenant that's bedrock. You can't get out of this gracious covenant because it's made with you by the one who cannot lie. You're in this covenant for good because you've been given righteousness that get, grants you access into this covenant community. But then there's also this overlying factor, at least during the Mosaic period, where to stay in the land that required obedience, not to be justified. Does that, does that distinction make sense? So to stay mm-hmm. in this covenant of grace requires nothing because it's been given to you. But to stay in this land required obedience. But the land and the covenant, they're not the same thing. Mm-hmm. It's the difference between, is this a means to an end or is this means an end of itself? Yeah, and so it was supposed to point the Israelites and supposed to point us to this land was not referring to a physical land. Mm-hmm. It was referring to a heavenly land. And Hebrews 4 interprets that for us. It says, you know that promised land that Abraham was looking forward to, that Moses was looking forward to, that Joshua was in, the land of Canaan? I'm telling you, the land of Canaan was actually heaven. It was pointing them to, you can't earn heaven. You're consistently disobedient against my covenants. I've given you a gracious covenant. You're still disobedient to this covenant. You still stay in this covenant, but I took you out of the land because I'm showing you there's a land coming that's better. There's a land coming that I've already promised you that's better. And so these second temple texts are wrestling with that issue. And they come to the other side where they say, no, 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 no. Justification can be lost because of our disobedience. We say, no, no, no. That's not how Hebrews, that's not how Paul, that's not how uh, Jesus understand these texts. They say we're in this covenant for good. And this land, it's pointing us to something that we can't earn ourselves. And I think we, we see uh, the law as there to expose our sin and know yep. that we fall short of perfection, yeah. who is God. And to have a relationship with God and be with God, we need a savior. So um, that that is you know, the difference between, um, the law and the gospel, you know, and and I think that, that it goes back to what Dr. Clark talks about. You have to have a law and gospel distinction. Yeah. And that's what you're saying too. Uh, if you guys looking through the text on the bottom of page 478, the last, last full paragraph, the last sentence is in fact, he's, or, um, Dr. Lee says, if in fact being reckoned righteousness, being reckoned righteous and works of law, are the distinguishing marks of the Qumran community, so think of covenant community, in distinction to other Jews, so they're pushing out other Jews from this covenant community because of these works of righteousness. And if the intent of these other Qumranic texts is to persuade them to join their, to join their community, something that N.T. Wright acknowledges, then isn't the purpose of the letter to get them in, not just for them to stay in? Wouldn't the works of law function more as requirements for the covenant, for the community membership than markers of it. So he's trying to distinguish these things 
where they say the like some of these Qumranic sects say, no, the law kept you in the land. The law kept you part of this covenant community. And we're saying, no, 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 we can't do the law. We can't do anything with the law. The law actually is our righteousness. The law, the law condemns us and the law has been obeyed for us, credited to us as righteous. We can't obey any of the law, which is why we were kicked out of the land. And a lot of these covenant communities at the, at the second temple time had a different understanding where they said, no, the law is the covenant community. That's what defines a covenant community. Yeah, that is extremely works-based. Yeah, and that's that's why if you if you don't both distinguish between law and gospel, have them as two separate things, but they also have to point towards each other. So law yep. has to point towards the gospel because the law prepares in yep. points of the gospel, but the gospel also points back to the law and says that's what's been fulfilled for you. Now yep. walk in it. Versus this tends to be that the law and gospel are mixed, that the law mm. and the gospel are the same thing. So stay in the gospel through the law, which we're like, yeah. I can't do that. You we see the gospel. That. None of us can do that. We see the gospel as uh, that's what you were saved from. Yeah, yeah. You were, you were, you actually not, you were, you weren't saved from the law. You actually, you were saved. In the law, you the law was fulfilled for you. The right. law was obeyed perfectly, completely for you. So you weren't saved like you didn't run around the law and then you were yeah. saved. You were actually pushed right through the law as if you obeyed it yourself. Well, and these, yeah, and these second and, and, temple uh, texts are misreading the law and the gospel. They're saying no, you actually stay in by law. And out outside Christ, the law brings death. Yeah, and so we were saved from death. That we yeah. deserve and maybe maybe we can as we as we can end this episode um we can end with i thought was a great summary of these two lines that the Qumranic texts were expecting they're expecting this king and they're expecting this priest they thought they were going to have two different messiahs or oh, they're oh, trying yeah, to I figure like out what, like, what are we supposed to do with some of this stuff yep. and dr lee i think there's a great job of understanding and bringing these two things together, where the Qumran community, the, the second temple of Jews, saw the promise given to David. They saw the promise given to Moses. Moses is a prophet. David yep. is a king. And there's uh, Moses also as a, or Aaron as a priest. So they're trying to understand, okay, we see these lines. We see where they're going. We see they're messianic, that we're promised somebody who's a king. We're promised somebody who's a prophet. And we're promised somebody who's a, as a, as a priest. What mm. do we do with these things? And I think Dr. Lee just nails it. Yep. He says, read the book of Hebrews. And the book of Hebrews says, <laughs> yes. Yeah, they were almost there. They were on the right track and they just stopped short. They were like, those must be three different messiahs coming, yeah. or two different messiahs coming. And um, they didn't see it as one person as uh, Christ. Yeah, it says, yeah, the top of 41, it becomes self-evident that in Qumran, at least two messiahs were expected, the royal messiah, and the priestly Messiah. And he goes on later on to say, that's when the book of Hebrews says, welcome to Jesus. Yep. He brings the priestly, the kingly, and the prophetic office together in the single Messiah. Because you need a king to rule his people. You need a prophet to pronounce the law. You need a priest to make the sacrifice. Mm -hmm. Jesus comes in as the king of his people, 
who has both given the law and fulfilled the law as the priest, not by sacrificing anybody else, but the priest who sacrificed himself as the true prophet, as the true king. I love how he put those, those three together, reading these Qumranic texts and saying, we have the prophet, priest, and king, those quote-unquote three lines of Messiah, conversion one. Yep. So to land this, uh, what do we what do we do from this now? Like I are do is how is this chapter edifying practically for us uh, Christians today in the church? Um, does it help clarify by contrast? Is there some things that we can we can take out of the Qumran and and uh, help? Yeah, like with our faith. I mean, there, we talked about some things that we don't have agreements with yeah, right yeah yeah so there's there's stuff and towards the end so pages 483 and 484 kind of talk about these things and so right in the middle of this paragraph in 43 it says it has been alleged that the reformers of the 16th and 17th century falsely interpreted paul in light of the protestant romanist pole- uh, polemic of their day and that a for forensic, so you think legal, justifying, understanding, a justification, and thus the covenants, is an inaccurate reflection of the theology of the church in her conflict with early Judaism. So he's, he's wrestling with, okay, the, the second temple texts see this differently. They don't see the law. They see covenant inclusion as part of the justification. You can lose justification because you can get out of the covenants. You can lose your status as a covenant member. They interpret that as you can lose your justification. The reformers look at this and says, no, 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 that's not what Paul says. That's not how Paul is reading the Old Testament. That's not what the Old Testament says. The Old Testament says you move in and out of the community, covenant community, not because you're justified one day, not justified the other day, but that's the visible church. You can move in and out of the visible church means nothing for your justified status. Your justified status is the invisible church, is your election in Christ. There are times that you'll fall, those times that you rise back up, but your the justified status is not contingent on your inside or outside of that visible community, though you will be inside the covenant community as a justified person. And so there he's wrestling with, and we're wrestling today with how do we understand justification? Do we see it as if you're outside this covenant community based off these legal requirements as mean you're not justified? The reformers said a big fat no. You're justified by Christ and by Christ alone. And he ends that paragraph by saying, this confirms that the theological battle that Paul fought in the day is similar to that of the early reformers who also attempted to rid the church of any notion of merit-based righteousness before the Lord. And then also he connects us with the eternal priesthood. The Qumran, they're, they're helpful with the priesthood. That's a big thing that they talk about. They talk about these two lines of the priesthood, the priesthood and the king. They're helpful with understanding those two lines where they see the Messiah. And we say yes and amen. That's one person. They thought it'd be two. We say it's one. That's Jesus. And so the Qumran text actually, because they disagree with us, we actually see much more of what Paul's saying. That Paul is actually talking about righteousness. He's actually talking about the law. He's actually talking about grace. And they, they help us when it comes to the priesthood and the kingship and the prophetical office. They're helpful because they see Messiah line in those different aspects. That's hopefully, 
I know this is a lot for a lot of people. And this is probably introducing some things that people have never heard of before. You might have heard of and you're like, what does that matter? Um, but it helps us shore up our doctrine of justification. That's the biggest thing. Yeah, and maybe it helps us understand Paul too, because Paul was writing during this sec- very end of Second yeah. Temple Judaism. Like, remember, it end that time era ends in AD seventy, um, and and he's writing before that these, you know, his letters. So yep. this yeah. is part of what he's trying to clarify in the gospel. Yeah, that's. And that's, that's a good point. And so the big question that they're, the scholars that are asking again, which is, you might be wondering, well, how, this is, how does this affect us? Is the commentaries written today are interacting with Second Temple texts, interacting mm. with Second Temple scholars. And so their big questions are, is Paul interacting with the Second Temple texts when he's talking about justification, or is he interacting with the law? And the reformers... And Dr. Lee and we are overwhelmingly in support of Paul is interacting with the law. Mm-hmm. He's probably not interacting with Second Temple texts. That assumes he had access to Second Temple texts and that, that they were probably a larger group than they actually were. Um, and so that's why if you come on the side of justification has to do with your inclusion with the covenant community that you can lose you tend to side on, no, Paul is interacting with Second Temple texts. If you come on the side, no, justification is given to us by Christ and by Christ alone, and Paul is interacting with the Mosaic law, with the covenant of works, you come on the side of the reformers on justification. That's, as we, as we end out, that's, those are the, kind of the two sides of this debate. Do you come on, is Paul interacting with Second Temple Judaism? When he talks about justification, or is he talking about the law with justification? The reformers cited on the side of law, and then those today who think you can lose justification said, no, he's interacting with Second Temple Judaism. Mm. Even though he, it was Second Temple Judaism was around while he was alive and writing. So he knew yeah, and it's, it depends. Them. It depends on how much he was influenced. Did he have access to the writings? Mm. Um yeah, it's which we just don't know. There's there's no evidence to support that Paul had access to Second Temple writings. But we we do know is he had access to the Old Testament. Yep, and that's what because he puts it all over the place. That's yeah. what he's pulling from. Yeah, so hopefully that helps you guys kind of wade through these waters. I know this is a hard chapter, and you're wondering why this matter, but it really does affect the way we see justification. So hopefully that helped you guys a little bit. Yep. Thanks, guys. Hey guys, we hope you enjoyed that episode of our podcast, Guilt, Grace, Gratitude. And we, as we've said before, we are bridging the gap to Reformed Christian theology for your listening pleasure. So we would like to make sure this is enjoyed by others around the world. And how to best do that is rate and review us on iTunes. Yeah, and you, after you rate a review or instead of rate and review or doing everything all in once, retweeting us on Twitter, liking us on Twitter, liking us on Instagram, following us on both of those platforms, because that actually puts in front of people's physical face, this podcast, these guests, and most importantly, the gospel, the doctrines uh, that these guests are bringing in front of you guys. So please do that. It helps get in front of more people. 
Amen. And hopefully you guys are part of a local church and you're tithing. And uh, after that, after tithing, if you have any means left over, please consider donating to us to make sure our bridge is well paved and maintained and strong and sturdy. As again, we bridge the gap to reform Christian <laughs> theology. Exactly. The yeah. And you guys can find that link on Anchor, our official Anchor website. If you just go on um, our social media links, it'll it'll link you to that website. It's also at the bottom of these this podcast show notes. If you're on this podcast, this specific episode, scroll all the way to the bottom of that show notes, and you guys will find a link for this or three different options of donating. So we hope you guys can help us bridge the gap, pay for shipping, get nicer stuff, all for the focus of spreading the gospel further. Yep. All for the kingdom of God. Thanks so much, guys. We'll see you guys next time. <laughs>